Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome to you. Thank you for joining me. I'm going to be in our volume of the book, Portraits of Yeshua, study today. We'll be in Lesson 3, and we will be talking about something in Genesis that brings us another portrait of Messiah Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. We're going to move forward just a little bit in Genesis as we've looked at in the first lesson. We did the introductory lesson to the volume of the book, understanding from Psalms, the prophetic word that the author of Hebrews tells us applies to Jesus and how he is all in the book. So now we're in the discovery of that by going back to the Hebrew scriptures. And in lesson two, we looked at Jesus as the creator God from Genesis 1-1 and beyond, and even before creation, according to John chapter 1, we saw Jesus as the creator God, the one who is the eternal, ever-living God. So today we move a little bit farther into Genesis, and today we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. Now we're taking this a little bit slowly because Genesis, the very first several chapters of Genesis and the entire book, so to speak, has many initial portraits of Jesus, and every one is very, very important. So we don't want to miss these. We want to pick them up and to move forward with these as a good foundation, and then we will progress on through the rest of the Tanakh, the rest of the Old Testament. So we know from Genesis 1 and 2 how God has made man and woman. And we find out when we read this chapter today how he would walk with them in the cool of the day. In other words, God's dream has always been relationship with people. Relationship. People who love him because they choose to love him and live a life in sweet communion with him fellowship with him that is unbroken by sin. So let's read Genesis chapter 3, and I will stop periodically and maybe make some comments. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, this is talking about the serpent, says to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So here he's talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 1 and 2, we find out in our reading of the scripture that God had given them a beautiful garden, and there were multiple, multiple trees, multiple fruit trees, multiple trees for beauty and for vegetation and so forth. They could have eaten of any of those trees. God gave them free reign through the garden and he put two special trees. One was the tree of life. The other was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And those two trees were very special that he put them in the midst of the garden and he told the man that he could eat of all the other trees except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Adam passed that information on to Eve. And so they knew that that was the one forbidden tree. Now, some creationists have estimated that there could have been 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 different varieties of trees, many of them fruit trees in the garden. And so Adam and Eve could have had many different types of fruits and various nuts and so forth from these trees. But there was one tree among those some perhaps 2,000 plus that God forbade them from eating from. Only one out of all the blessings God had given them. And so we're going to see a tactic of the devil in this. Then the serpent, verse 4, said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. So let's see the tactic that the devil uses. And he still uses the same tactic today. He's going to challenge the word of God every chance he can. He's going to try to cast doubt on God's word or God's character or both. So out of all of the trees that they could have freely eaten in, in the garden, the devil focuses on one that is forbidden to them. One tree. We don't know the fruit. Most people have claimed it was an apple. We've been raised in church hearing that. We don't know. It doesn't say. It just says a fruit tree. It talks about the fruit of that tree. In Genesis, Bereshit, we find the book of beginnings. We find the beginning of everything, which is one of the reasons that Genesis, especially chapters 1 through 11, are challenged so much and this is part of that tactic of the devil throw doubt on the word of god in genesis we find the beginning of the creation of nature of man of birds and beasts and all of this and the beginning of man we see the beginning of man in genesis we see the beginning of sin the beginning of redemption the beginning of salvation and its pattern that will be followed throughout the word of God. The beginning of evil, hatred, and pagan worship. We see the beginning of the promises of salvation and blessings. Later on, we will see the beginning of a chosen people and a messianic line. But here in Genesis chapter 3, we're focusing on the beginning of this work that the devil has done to cast doubt and to bring sin into the world through the choice of the first man and woman. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So both Adam and Eve are here. Somehow the serpent is deceiving Eve. Paul speaks about that later on when he warns about deception and he warns about the ways that the enemy can capture us through deception. And he speaks of how Eve was the one that was deceived. So Eve was the one that challenged her faith, challenged what God had said, allowed the lies of the devil and the focus of the devil to cast doubt on God's character and on God's word in her mind. And so then she began to look and concentrate on that tree. Out of all the other blessings God had given them, she began to focus on it. And as she focused on it, oh, you better believe the devil was right there to try to get her to desire it all the more. She was drawn away. James talks about how we, when we sin, we're drawn away of our own lust. And then sin can take root and begin to be born inside of us and eventually bring us into the act of sin and its consequences, ultimately the death. The second death is what is being referred to there. And that's another topic we'll get into later. So she began to look at this and it was desirable and it was pleasant and it was one she thought could make her wise. So she also gave to her husband with her and he ate as well. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now they realized then because the perfect world had been pierced with sin, because they had broken fellowship with God when they had a pure relationship with the Lord. Now that sin has entered, there is no longer that pure relationship with God. They have pierced that. They have broken fellowship with God because of their sin. And so now there's a realization of sin and its consequences 
there's a realization now of morality, for instance, things of that sort. Those were never a problem before because there was a pure environment. There was a pure mindset. There was a pure heart in them. But now because of sin, there's been a change. And now what do they try to do? They try to fix the problem themselves. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. In other words, they tried to correct their sin by their own works. They tried to fix the sin problem, and they can't do it. Nobody can do that. There's no human being alive that can cover their own sin. There's no person alive that can pay the ransom for their own sin. There's no person alive that can pay the wages of sin to get themselves out from under that condemnation. Although people may try. The very first man and woman tried. They sewed fig leaves together, trying to cover their shame, to cover their sin. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So now, not only has sin broken the fellowship with God, not only has sin given them shame and they're trying to cover themselves because of sinfulness and shame with these fig leaves, now they're also afraid. Now fear has entered the equation. And because of their sin, the one that they were walking with day by day, talking with, laughing with, relating with, enjoying their fellowship every single day. Now they're afraid of that one. The Lord didn't change, but something changed in them. Fellowship was broken. And so now you see them hiding themselves. But notice this, verse 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Notice this. God initiates the rescue of Adam. God initiates the redemption of Adam. God does not leave Adam in a sinful condition in that garden with no hope of ever having fellowship restored and relationship restored with their creator God. God was not satisfied to do that. And so the Lord God goes into the garden walking like he normally would every day. And he calls to them and says, Adam, where are you? Every time in the scripture, when God asks a question to anyone, it is never because he doesn't know the answer and he needs us to tell him the answer. No, what he's doing is he's revealing to us something we're not aware of. In other words, God knew exactly where Adam was. As a matter of fact, I see him in my mind's eye as if he's walking closer and closer and closer to where they're hiding as he's going through the garden calling, where are you? He's getting closer. He knows exactly where they are. The problem is that Adam did not know where Adam was now. Adam was estranged from God because he'd broken fellowship because he yielded to sin. And so Adam needed to be aware. Adam needed to understand that he was now in a broken relationship with his wonderful creator, God, who loved him. So he said, verse 10, this is Adam speaking. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, meaning the Lord, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? So God realizes that they have committed sin. He knew that. Matter of fact, he knew it before he ever created them to begin with. He knew exactly what it was going to cost him to have relationship with them. And he still made them. And then when they sinned, he goes into the garden looking for them. He initiated their rescue. 
he initiated it because he is full of mercy and abundant in grace, and his love drove him. Hallelujah. Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. In other words, here we go with the blame game. Well, it's the woman's fault. She's the one that did it. You know, I didn't I didn't initiate this, God, so don't get mad with me. She's the one that started the whole thing. She's the one that gave it to me. It's her fault. And the Lord God then said to the woman, he's not neglecting or refusing to deal with what Adam is talking about. He's going to get back to that. But now the Lord says, it says, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman picks up the whole blame game thing. She gets Adam's example. And so she picks it up. And she says, okay, the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So now it's the serpent's fault. Well, in essence, all of them were right. But let's see how God comes into the midst of this situation to redeem them, to bring a rescue. Let's see the beautiful portrait of Yeshua in Genesis 3. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the first thing he does is he deals with the, the serpent, the one who initiated the temptation to begin with. And he tells the serpent, first of all, you're cursed, and you're going to now be forced down on your belly to crawl. Now that implies, it implies that in some way he was not on his belly when the Lord gave him this curse. Somehow, perhaps he walked, perhaps he flew, I don't know, but this implies that at least. But God gives him a curse and he is then restricted to crawl around on his belly. Verse 15 is the very first messianic promise in the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Tanakh. This is the first promise of the Messiah who will come. And I will put enmity between you, he's talking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, so now he's gone backwards, remember, and now he's dealing with the consequences of sin with each one that has played this blame game and each one that he's talking to. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So here we see these judgments placed upon them, these consequences. Notice a couple of things. First of all, the serpent is cursed and the ground is cursed for Adam's sake. But Adam and Eve, neither one of them received a curse. Now some have said and called some of these things curses that were placed upon them. But in essence, they're consequences that they had to begin to endure, and all mankind has since then. That's why childbirth, for instance, is very, very painful for women. So there were consequences that all mankind would suffer, but man and woman were never cursed by God. God blesses us, and it's because of the blessing of the Lord that he would even initiate this rescue of Adam and Eve to begin with. Verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin 
and clothed them. Now here we get to the point of the cost of sin and the ransom of man. Both are beautifully shown here in Genesis chapter 3. The cost of sin, let's consider this. The Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Tunics of skin means he took the skins off of an animal, requiring that there was a substitutionary blood sacrifice. An animal, an innocent being, had to die so that his skins could be used. Now, we don't know. We're not told what this animal was. We don't know. I assume and think that it may have been a lamb because of the rest of the typology with the lamb through the scripture. But we do not know. All we do know is that the very first blood sacrifice on behalf of mankind occurs right here in the book of beginnings in Genesis chapter 3. There was an animal that was killed. So Adam and Eve were initially, immediately in realization of a very serious, real cost for them and their future generations for sin. Sin carries a high price tag. And I want to, I want to bring this out as well. There were two trees, special trees that the Lord made in this garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I believe that we need to understand that God was giving mankind a choice because God created us for eternity. The tree of life was so that they could live forever, ever. God has put eternity in our hearts, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us in chapter 3. So God made us all to live forever. And every single person alive today will live forever. In one of two locations, you're either going to live forever with the Lord in heaven because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You've been born again by the spirit of the living God and accepted the finished blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf to pay the penalty and the ransom for your sin. Or you will spend eternity in hell because you've rejected Jesus Christ, period. Every person will live forever in one of two destinations. But God loved us so much that even here with the very first man and his sin, Jesus instituted, the Lord instituted a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice in substitute so that the man could live, proving to us that there is a very real and high price for sin. The next thing that this shows us, the next major point that I want to bring out is this. Someone or something must pay a ransom for men and for women for their sins. There must be the blood sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says this, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh days, in the days of the, the law, that was primarily done through a substitutionary animal, similar all the way back to Genesis 3, where we see it here. It was a pattern that was followed in those days. But the purpose for that pattern was to point us to the one Messiah, the one promised one who would come that could then pay the ransom for our sin, that he alone could do. No one else could do that. In Psalm chapter 49, verse 7 and 8, it says this, None of them can by any means redeem his brother. He's talking about wealth and those that have money and possessions and other things. He says, None of them can by any mean redeem his brother. In other words, there's not enough money, there's not enough gold or silver anywhere on the planet that anyone could redeem another human being. You can't do it. We can't do it. I can't do it. 
None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. In other words, there's not enough money anywhere. There's not enough silver anywhere. There's not enough gold anywhere that could pay God a ransom for a person, for one, one individual souls. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. In other words, God has provided a ransom, and that ransom that has been demanded is a very steep price. We just read it in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. It is the shedding of blood. A ransom is demanded for the salvation of mankind. It's required by God's word. So something or someone had to pay that ransom. In the Genesis account there in Genesis 3, and all through the Tanakh, all through the Old Testament, that ransom was paid and accounted at that time through animal sacrifices that were all pointing to the final sacrifice of the one man who came to pay the sin debt of every individual. Now, did this failure of man take God by surprise? Absolutely not. God knew before he ever made man how it was going to turn out. He knew it all. He knew exactly how everything would turn out. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10, it says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So God is the only person who sees the end from the beginning, and he knew beforehand that Adam and Eve were going to sin, and yet he still created them, and he still had the plan. And it has always been plan A. There was never a plan B ever to begin with. Notice this, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, it says this, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then, if we go to Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, we read this, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. In First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, it says this, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, Without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. In John chapter 17, verse 24, it says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says this, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And then in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, it says this, then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So in other words, all of these are telling us that this was already planned out, the entire thing, as it has unfolded according to the pages of scripture, God already knew it beforehand. He knew that when he created man and he gave man free will so that people would love him 
because they choose to love him and they would obey him because they want to please him and they choose to obey him. You see, beloved friend, God never wanted robots. He never wanted someone who he would just order and they would obey him. He has created angels to do his bidding. But what he wanted when he created man was someone who would love him because he wants to love him, because he chooses to love and obey and honor him. God has always wanted relationship with mankind. He even told us about that in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 21. And in Exodus chapter 21, we read about, in the first verses, about how a person could have a slave or a servant that they would take under their wing into their home, they would provide for them, etc., and the servant would work for them for a certain number of years. And then when the end of that time was up, it was time for them to let the servants go free. But if that master was a good master and the servant wanted to continue to serve him out of love, then there was a procedure, and I'm going to read that to you in just a moment. Paul picks up on this and uses this to describe in the New Testament the doulos, the bond servant, the bond slave, the pierced ear slave, we could call it. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 5, it says this, but if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door and, or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. Paul gives us this indication in the choice of the Greek word that he uses to describe himself and servants of the Lord in the New Testament. It's the doulos the pierced ear slave, the one that is talking about here in Exodus chapter 21, where that slave says, I love my master. I want to be in relationship with my master. I don't want to live anywhere else. I don't want to serve anybody else. I want to be in relationship with this good master. That's what God wants is people who love him, people who see his goodness and appreciate it and want to honor him and want to serve him because they choose to. That's what the Lord has always wanted. And when he created man, he made sure that he gave man a choice so that man then could choose to honor him and love him or not. And it's been that way all through the scriptures. And we see even to the New Testament where Paul says, I am a bond slave. I have chosen to be a pierced ear slave because I love my good master. I love the Lord. He knew the consequences. He knew ahead of time. He is the only one who could see the end from the beginning. It's similar. If you're at a parade, for instance, if you're at a parade and you're standing on the street corner watching, you have a very, very, very limited view of what you can see in that parade. And you have to wait a little bit before the next items come through because you can only see a few things. You might see a float on the left and you might see the next band right in front of you and you might see the horses coming behind them. But that's about all you're going to be able to see is two or three parts of that entire parade. If you're up in a press box recording it or reporting on it, then you would be able to see more. But you still can't see the entire thing. It may be 13 city blocks long. Who knows? And you can't see the whole thing. To be able to see the end from the beginning, you have to be way above. You have to be way outside of it. Let's say maybe you're in a blimp looking from way high in the sky. Then you might be able to see the end from the beginning. and You already see everything that's got to occur before Santa Claus comes on the fire truck at the end or whatever. So 
you see the whole thing. God is like that. He sees the end from the beginning. He knows how every single piece of that parade is going to fall into place and everything's going to go together. And yet, he who knew the end from the beginning before the foundation of the world still agreed to create man knowing the cost of sin and what it would require of him because he being the holy God is the only one who was sinless, who could pay the debt of sin for mankind who is sinful man. So the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus, before he ever created Adam, knew what cost he would have to pay himself, that he himself would end up being the lamb slain. And he still made us in spite of what he already knew ahead of time. Romans 11, verse 33 through 36, speaks of the unsearchable, amazing wisdom and riches of God and of his love. Only he could have done such a thing and redeemed mankind. So now in the remainder of our time today in this lesson, I just want to focus on Adam and his portrait of Jesus that we find verified in other scriptures, taking us all the way back into Genesis, taking us back to the Tanakh, to the Old Testament. So let's consider a few things. Adam means red or ruddy. The word Adam means red or ruddy. Adam was the first human being, the first man, the first male that God created. God fashioned him and made him out of the dust of the earth. And then he gave him Eve, creating Eve from that rib of his side, and gave him his mate, male and female. God has created them. Adam was the first man and became the progenitor of all other human beings. God made man and woman, blessed them in marriage, encouraged them and enabled them to be fruitful and multiply so that they would fill the earth with people. God loves people. So then we come to the New Testament, and it begins to speak about this first Adam, but it also brings us to understand there is a first Adam, which is who we read about in Genesis chapter 3, and there is a last Adam. Now, consider this. Since zillions and zillions of men, males, have been born since the first Adam, and since zillions more have been born on the earth since the last Adam was born and walked on the earth, what does this mean? How can it be? Who is the last Adam? The last Adam is the Messiah. The last Adam is Jesus the Christ. So let's find out about the first Adam and the last Adam. I'll start the reading in Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, meaning Adam, the first Adam, much more the grace of God and the gift 
by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. The last Adam he's talking about there. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I want to read verses 45 through 47. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. In other words, the last Adam is the Lord from heaven. So let's consider what Paul in the scriptures is telling us here in Romans chapter 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15 and how it compares and contrasts with Genesis chapter 1 through 3. We are looking at the first Adam and the last Adam. So let's consider a few comparisons first. The first Adam is made of the dust. In other words, he is a human being. The last Adam is eternal but became a man. He made himself of no reputation. He came as a man, made of dust, so to speak, made of human flesh, and took upon his deity, adding humanity. He took upon himself human form so that he could be our substitute and so that he could redeem mankind as Hebrews said, bringing many sons to glory. The first Adam was called the first man, Adam. The last Adam is called the last man or the last Adam. The first Adam is of the earth, earthly. The last Adam is the Lord from heaven. Now let's look at some contrasts because as we read through those scriptures, you could hear many contrasts. Let's examine those. First, breath given by the Lord and he became alive. This is talking about the first Adam. The last Adam is a life-giving spirit. In other words, he always is living. He is eternally alive. The first Adam was human only, created by God. The last Adam is the Lord from heaven who humbled himself by taking on humanity to himself in adding that to the fact that he was fully God. So in other words, when the Lord from heaven came, when the last Adam came, he was 100% God and 100% man. When Philippians 2 talks about how he humbled himself, he humbled himself by adding humanity to his deity. The first Adam is a type of another one to come, him who is to come. The last Adam is the substance, or in other words, the one who was to come and has, in fact. The first Adam disobeyed. The last Adam obeyed and lived a life of obedience to his father. The first Adam committed offense and sin. The last Adam took Adam's offense and sin, the first Adam's offense and sin, on himself willingly and obediently. The first Adam 
saw condemnation enter because of sin. The last Adam, because of Jesus' sacrifice to pay for that sin, brings no condemnation. The first Adam, because of sin and condemnation, now would suffer death. Death has now entered the picture. Because of Jesus' atoning sacrifice and his resurrection, death is overcome, and we now have the blessing of life forever promised. Because of the first Adam, sin and condemnation resulted in judgment. And the last Adam, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, it results in a guarantee of our resurrection and eternal life. The first Adam, we see the sting of death and the strength of sin brought in. In the last Adam, we see that he overcame death and eventually will destroy and swallow death up in victory, exactly as the prophet Hosea says from the Tanakh, from the Old Testament. The first Adam brought bondage. The last Adam brings us freedom. The first Adam brought us slavery to sin. The last Adam brings us victory in life. The first Adam brought in the wages of sin. The last Adam offers the free gift. The first Adam brought us into the mastery as a slave of sin. The last Adam is the free gift giver. The first Adam caused us to all inherit the same sinful nature of Adam. Now, however, with the last Adam, we are being made into the image of Jesus and partakers of his divine nature when we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and been born again. The first Adam was full of sinfulness. The last Adam is the Lord from heaven full of righteousness. The first Adam was corruptible and flesh and blood. The last Adam is in an incorruptible spiritual body, and we will have the same because of Jesus. The first Adam made people dead in their sins. The last Adam makes people alive and makes them brand new creations in Christ Jesus. The first Adam was doomed and bound to death. The last Adam is alive forevermore and is so known as the first fruit from the dead. The first Adam lost the dominion that God had shared with him. The last Adam defeats all enemies and rules over all. The first Adam was human only. The last Adam is a life-giving spirit. I'll read these scripture references to you as well. I encourage you to look up Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. Isaiah 46, verse 9 through 10. We referenced that one earlier. Ephesians 1, verse 4. Matthew 25, verse 34. Romans 3, verse 23. Romans 6, verse 23. Isaiah 25, verse 8. Revelation 20, verse 14. Hosea 13, verse 14. Revelation 2, verse 7. Revelation 22, verse 2 and verse 14, and 2 Corinthians 3, 18. So we see how we compare and contrast the first Adam with the last Adam. I also encourage you to look up some Answers in Genesis videos that they have produced about Adam and about the literal Adam and the importance of that. And I want to just point out a few things about some of the video points that they bring out. First of all, the first man brought sin to all versus the last Adam who can save all who will come to him from their sins. Second, the logic of the gospel is grounded in the fact that there is a literal first man and original sin. The doctrine of original sin is key and paramount in the scriptures. It is taught from the very beginning book. It is taught in the book of the beginnings, right here in Genesis chapter 3. There is original sin that is applied to all mankind, and there is one answer, one solution for that sin, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
and he came as the last Adam to pay our sin debt in full so that we could be free and be saved and have our names written in his book in heaven and be with him forever. Third, Jesus comes as a man to take upon himself God's wrath for all of our sins and become our substitute in our place. Fourth, the Bible ties the connection between the first Adam and the last Adam. We see that as we've looked at these passages in the New Testament and in the scriptures. Praise God for the last Adam. We are not left doomed and enslaved, all because of the last Adam who came to redeem us. How wonderful that our great God, the Creator, and His amazing love, the one who knew the end from the beginning and still chose to create us, knowing how it would turn out and the great sacrifice that it would cost. And yet He provided the sacrifice on our behalf, a man like us, to die for us, to save us. And that man is Jesus. He guarded the tree of life on our behalf. We'll see that as we read further into Genesis chapter 3. He also completes the victory and defeats all evil, including the wages of sin and death itself. We find that to be true in understanding Hosea chapter 13 verse 14 and how Paul shows the fulfillment in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I encourage you to read that. And I love the way it is worded in the New King James Version in Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. I'd like to read that to you now as we draw to a close. In Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, it says this. God is speaking and he says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. In other words, the Lord is saying here, I'm the one who's going to defeat you, death. I'm the one who's going to destroy you, grave. I'm the one who's going to have the victory over you, and I will not regret doing it at all. And Paul shows us how this will be fulfilled in a coming day, promise guaranteed, and we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul quotes from Hosea's prophecy. Therefore, the bottom line is this for us. Oh, beloved friend, grace has overcome our sin because of the last Adam. And our encouraging response, Paul captures for us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, in other words, because of all that I've told you, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So this is how we carry on knowing that there's no sin too great, that God's grace won't overcome it and forgive it. This is another beautiful portrait of Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua, revealed in the last Adam, and he has come to save all of us from our sins. Praise be to God for the last Adam. I pray that this has been a blessing to you, and Lord willing, you can join us again for more of the episodes of the volume of the book. And God bless you today in Jesus' name. Amen.